From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. President-elect Biden will choose retired Army General Lloyd Austin to be the next Secretary of Defense. Politico and CNN report the former commander of Central Command and former vice chief of the Army would need a waiver from Congress since it's been less than seven years since he was in uniform. Several members of the Senate Armed Services Committee said during the confirmation process for Secretary Jim Mattis, granting such a waiver should be rare. The Pentagon's number three office will disappear if President Trump signs the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act or Congress overrides a veto. The bill that Congress passed includes a provision to close the office of the chief management officer within a year. Federal News Network reports the bill doesn't specify how the department should assign the duties of the CMO. The General Services Administration is prepping for an April transition to the new System for Award Management website. The SAM.gov site will merge into the site that's currently known as beta.sam.gov. NextGov reports April 26th is GSA's target date for the transition. President-elect Biden says he'll announce more choices for his cabinet this week. Politico reports he'll also focus on filling jobs that don't need Senate confirmation. Jeff Neal's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's chairman of the National Academy of Public Administration. Jeff, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. So my understanding is there are about 1,000 Senate-confirmed jobs and about 3,000 jobs that, uh, that the administration will appoint but don't require Senate confirmation. What's the best way to go about qualifying the people for those jobs that don't require Senate confirmation? And what's the timeline for getting some of those people on the job, do you think? Hi, Francis. Well, you know, they, they don't have to worry too much about finding talent for a lot of these jobs. Uh, at, this, at this time of the election season, the president-elect's team is getting bombarded with resumes. Uh, they have to go through a lot of resumes. They have to work their contact networks. Uh, listen to the folks who are recommending people to them. You know, lots of, lots of interest groups of various types will be recommending folks. And so they have to, to go through all those, identify a slate of candidates that they want. And then they need to look at how they balance the diversity in those candidates. So that, that makes it a little more challenging when you're trying to make certain that not only do you have really well-qualified people, you also have a, a, a very diverse group of people. So you don't end up with an administration full of you know, old white guys. And so there's a lot going on like that right now. And then they have to decide you know, what positions they want to fill first. Obviously, they're going to start with the, the, the core White House staff and the cabinet. And then you know, the, the question is always, do you work your way down from the cabinet level jobs down to the very lower level political jobs uh, or not? And, and my recommendation has always been that administration kind of start in the middle with all of those uh, positions that are not Senate confirmed, because they can move much, much faster. They, they do have to just do their vetting, do their interviews, pick people, and then they can start them to work at noon on January 20th. And, and a lot of the work that gets done in federal agencies isn't done by the, the Secretary of Homeland Security, for example. It's done by somebody a couple of levels below that person who uh, is not Senate confirmed and who can get the work right away. 
There is a baseball analogy here, Jeff, that uh, when a team gets a new general manager, he likes to be able or she likes to be able to choose a manager, and then the manager likes to be able to choose the coaches. The manager doesn't like the general manager to choose the coaches before he can get into the job. Is that, is that a fair analogy for what's going on here, or is it reasonable to believe that who the administration chooses for those second and third tier jobs will probably be amenable to a secretary, a deputy secretary, and the C-suite in an agency? Yeah, it is a good analogy, Francis, because you know what happens is you get people in and they, they come in sometimes, if they have no government experience, they come in thinking, oh, I'm going to get to pick all the people to work for me. And that's never the case. They, they really don't get to pick all the people. The, the, the White House picks a lot of the people and the, the secretary influences who the, the people are. You know, the secretary normally might get to pick his or her chief of staff and they'll have, they'll have some input into who is selected but they don't get to make the final selections on all those positions. And the real question is, you know, for the administration is what's most important, keeping those people happy or completely happy or being successful. Uh, and particularly when you go consider that, you know, while we'll probably see cabinet secretaries confirmed fairly quickly, we're not gonna see undersecretaries and assistant secretaries filled quickly and leaving the jobs that report to those folks vacant for months, you know, or maybe until the end of 2021, just means that, that priorities won't be worked on. There won't be people on the president, president's team who are in place and making things happen. That's the reason it's really important to not only fill from the top, but also start filling in the middle and expanding out from there. Uh, it, it makes it much more likely that, that an administration can actually get things done early on. You know, they could easily have hundreds of, and several hundred people on board on day one uh, if they focus on the jobs that aren't Senate confirmed. That's why I recommend that uh, all the time. A president like Biden has made no secret of his respect and admiration for the career civil service and uh, the leader of his transition effort, former Senator Ted Kaufman, even when he was in the Senate, uh, highlighted a federal employee of the week every week. Do you expect to see a number of people take a path similar to your path, which was as a long-term uh, civil servant transitioning to a political appointee job? Do you think there will be a fair amount of those in this administration, Jeff? Yeah, I don't know. It, I, I think it's a good idea when you have that happen. But to do that, you, you really have to get your name in front of people who are making the decisions right now. You know, in my case, I, I work with uh, three different groups of people to get them to recommend me to presidential personnel, and, and that worked. A lot of times people who are extremely capable just don't have a ready means of getting their resumes in front of the people who are making decisions right now. And so, so that's the challenge you run into. Uh, you know, sometimes it happens because you work with somebody who is now involved in a transition and that person says, wow, you know, you should consider this person. Uh, but that's something that, that's really a, a hard thing to make happen. Uh, I hope it does happen for, for more people because I think it's a very good thing for the government to have people in appointed positions who've served for years in career jobs. Jeff Neal, thanks very much as always. Thanks for having me. Up next, planning for remote work for the long term. Straight ahead on Government Matters, making the most of managing a teleworking team. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back with coronavirus vaccines on the horizon. Some agencies are itching to get back into the office while others are considering long-term telework options. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, it's great to see you again. This is kind of the payoff, I think, to the conversations that you and I have been having for, what, eight years, ten, something like some ridiculous amount of time that agencies now are thinking when we come back to the office or when we can come back to the office, we won't necessarily. Agencies are figuring out they like to do business this way. The managers like it just as much as the employees like it, don't they? Yeah, we've been hearing that a lot, Francis. In fact, there's been two Senate committees over the past several months that have focused on just this. One was focused on private industry best practices and learning everything that we could to adopt in the federal space. And the second was just last month, tail end of it, where Department of Labor and Social Security Administration and other federal agencies were really lending best practices to help adopt long-term and even remote work strategies across the federal space moving forward post-pandemic. What do the best practices look like in your view? What did that group that Labor and SSA came up with and what did the group that private sector organizations are talking about? How do they compare and how do they contrast? Well, I was very excited to hear that many of the agencies were hinging their policies and strategies around that Telework Enhancement Act that was passed, as you mentioned, a decade ago. And so it's useful to know that they had agreements in place and an IT strategy to support what regular telework would look like. Fast forward nine months, and what we're hearing is it's time to modernize a bit. And I think we're at a point where we really have a unique opportunity to holistically look at the policy, the people, the training, but also the technology to allow and support long-term sustained flexibility in how, when, and where we work, which will include some formally, uh, partially part-time telework arrangements becoming uh, long-term remote work kind of arrangements and also a hybrid workforce. So what we're hearing is about 25% potentially could end up fully remote for the long haul, saving taxpayers a lot of money, um, being able to deliver mission and uh, services in areas of the country that traditionally were really challenging to get to, and the ability for the federal government to bring and cast the net wide, you know, the talent pool into its ranks, things that we've been talking about with regards to inclusivity and diversity and innovation um, for the last 10 years. So, and plus, plus 10 years, actually. I think we're just starting to understand too what the potential cost savings ramifications are because they're not just limited to uh, real estate and, and they're not just limited to the, the things that seem obvious. I talked to one chief human capital officer recently who said, yeah, what if I have the opportunity um, for my office in Washington to draw from a workforce that lives in an area which a with a much lower locality pay differential. These are organizations that are thinking, folks are starting to think about this, I think, from a number of different directions, aren't they? They truly are. And, you know, it's about time. We've been preaching to the choir about these kinds of issues. But I think most importantly, it, it helps meet some of the items on the president's management agenda that have been in for several administrations now such as IT modernization, such as decentralizing government and putting government back to hometown USA where people need to access services and um, the government resources that are there. You know, consider recovery efforts. 
the federal government is expending an enormous amount of money on grant services to help with employment and food security and housing security. And if the people who are delivering those services are also having the flexibility to be able to work in hometown USA, it helps expand the tax base and allow for more jobs to come to those communities and, and really strengthen the ties between government and the people. And that's what it was meant to do. I think also, Francis, you know, I've heard a lot of your segments focus on IT modernization and the zero trust factor. You know, we've been operating this way, stress testing our infrastructure on the tech side for the last nine months in ways we never thought we would to the capacity in which we never thought we would. It's time now to start thinking about, you know, how can we move to some of those digital workspaces that are working so well for state and local governments, you know, states like California, and Illinois, Ohio, the VA has, has adopted 200,000 licenses of its digital workspace to help equip, deliver the premier VA patient experience to its customers. So it's time to start thinking outside of just the VPN and what can we start doing with regards to security and flexibility and modernization to um, focus on high level work delivering the services that the people need and allowing flexibility to do that in a lot of great ways that, as you mentioned, can save the taxpayer a lot of money too. We have about a minute left, Mika. What are managers that are succeeding in a remote work environment doing to manage specifically regarding engagement and employee satisfaction with being connected to their managers? It's always been a, a weak spot in the FEVs. Yeah, it's such a great question. And, and you know, we've had practice now over the past year, leveraging different kinds of supportive workplace practices, whether that be team-based learning, whether that be um, a variety of workplace flexibility schedules, and then different kinds of benefits as well. You know, think about the CARES Act leave that has been implemented. Um, HR, it's taken, it's taken an enormous effort from across all agencies, but you have HR and tech and finance all coming together to support the workplace in ways that really we wouldn't have had a chance to put into practice had it not been for this pandemic. So there are some, I think, glimmers of hope and really great learnings that we'll be able to adopt for the long haul when we get back. Thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Thank you so much, Frank. Take care. Up next, choosing a national cyber coordinator. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a look ahead at what that new director would do and where it would do it. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Welcome back. The National Defense Authorization Act includes a requirement for a national cybersecurity director. The director would have about a 75 to 100 person staff. Ari Schwartz is managing director of cybersecurity services at Venable. He's former special assistant to the president and senior director for cybersecurity. Ari, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What does this role look like? What does the person who takes this job, look, uh, what does this person do and what does this person lead um, now that we know what we know from the National Defense Authorization Act? Well, a few things that came through that this time that we found out. So uh, one thing would be that it is a Senate confirmed position. It's the first time that uh, a cyber position like this in the White House is going to be con Senate confirmed. Um, and it's also uh, tied into the National Security Council. It would be a principal on the National Security Council. 
which were questions, both questions that had been asked about, uh, you know, how, how this would work. Um, the staff, as you said, 75 to 100, that's pretty large for a director at, inside the White House. Uh, usually, you know, the, the, the staff of White House staff like this is not operational. It's usually coordination, uh, more on the coordination side. So that, if, if that's a lot of coordination then, that gives us the ability to kind of do a lot of different types of coordination that uh, previous offices couldn't do. Uh, because you have the staff to do that kind of outreach. And what does that look like, do you think? What's the coordination that you think is uh, is likely for that office to take and what's appropriate for that office to take, do you think, Ari? Well, we, what, what we've seen is, uh, I think so, certainly in terms of planning and building the strategies out, um, we've seen uh, the, the way that the Trump administration did it was kind of to call, put a call out for uh, different agencies and then kind of work them uh, slowly across uh, the different and, and share those kind of uh, get all the different kind of viewpoints and share that information and build the strategy that way. I think in this case you have more hands-on writing of the strategy with the with different uh, individuals that are working for the director and actually doing the writing with the agencies directly and then bringing it together. Uh, probably bring it together a lot faster as well. How does one discern between coordination and autonomy, authority over uh, some of the other organizations in cyber across government, Ari? Yeah, that's a good question. And there's a question as to whether, you know, having more people means uh, micromanaging by its nature versus uh, the idea that more people means covering more areas. And so I think that's really up to the leadership and whoever this director is going to be uh, coming in and setting a tone that says we're not going to micromanage. The agencies are the ones that do the work. The agencies are the ones that operate. Um, and and what we do is set the tone and, and figure out what issues we want to cover. Um, having a staff like this, you could say you could have three people working on workforce issues alone, right? And that I think there there needs to be that kind of coordination to make progress on an issue like that, as an example. Um, certainly, uh, in terms of uh, how to coordinate some of the between some of the agencies, uh, where you have a lot of different regulatory agencies involved, as well as sector-specific agencies, um, and then DHS kind of doing some of its job in terms of uh, critical infrastructure protection. That having people in for each of those areas as well so is a place where uh, coordination has been sorely needed in the past. And I, I, and you're not the only expert that has told me that. My my. I, I guess worries may be too strong a word, but I wonder what the structural uh, function looks like because you have this White House cybersecurity coordinator. Um, obviously, that's the number one cybersecurity person in the United States because that person works out of the White House. But there's a lot of authority at CISA. There's a lot of authority at Cyber Command. There are a lot of cyber authorities in the various agencies. I just wonder what that construct winds up looking like, or if that's if you expect that already to be very fluid, depending who the personalities are that are positioned at all these places. Well, uh, for we we have had in the past the ability to separate those out, and, and there has been some good um, uh, work that's been done in the past in terms of making sure that we have uh, the right pe people in place um, and that th those different agencies are doing their job and they're not overlapping. And then having um, the NSC or in this case, the directorate kind of come in and, and uh, you know, do that kind of coordination where they host meetings to help to host meetings where there's cross agency issues. Um, and there's so many cross agency issues here that still exist because it's still a young area that there is the ability to do it. Now, at some point, 
if that becomes out, if, if we start doing more operational work out of the White House, that, that's going to become problematic. What? One other thing I'd point out is um, that because this is Senate confirmed, this this person, this director, can be called up to testify, which cybersecurity coordinators in the past have not, and as people that work at NSC have not been called to testify. That's one of the reasons that the White House is not going to be happy with this position. Um, this person's going to spend a lot of time on the Hill. We still have cyber, uh, you know, reporting to nine different committees and 27 different subcommittees. Um, so you, you, this person is going to be spending a lot of time testifying, meeting with members of Congress, and having staff uh, associated with that and uh, talking about planning across all, all the different agencies. I grin not because of the content of your answer, but because you anticipated my last question, which is what's the ramification of this person being Senate confirmed? What makes that person successful? What's the skill set that this person has? We have about 30 seconds left, Ari. I think you got to be able to describe what the agencies are doing in plain language and also understand it technically and then also be able to understand the process the workings of government right and in, in a lot of different phases the budget um the national security the ic world uh dod i think you've got to be able to understand law enforcement you got to be able to understand all of those different workings and uh, be able to translate that back to in, in plain language ari schwartz thank you very much it's great to have you back Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.